four weeks dealing with uh, true spirituality, and if you want, you can turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to begin our reading at verse 10. Um, I know that Jim Tinky had an extensive amount of skin cancer surgery yesterday, and um, let's see... Charlie Causey had knee surgery yesterday, so I'm not sure of anything else. If, again, if you all know of things, appreciate if you'd inform us. Let me pray. Father, for our food, our fellowship, we're thankful. We pray for these two friends and pray that Charlie would recover quickly and that Jim Tinky would not be adversely affected uh, from all of the skin surgery he had yesterday. Just bless these men, keep them in your grace, and let their families take care of them. Be with all these people who are in authority in and around our world dealing with terrorism. Guide them and unify them, and we pray that you would give them success, and we pray for the advance of the gospel in these Islamic parts of our world that the kingdoms of our Lord would become the kingdoms of our Christ and that he would reign forever and ever. Now help us to be faithful followers of Christ here. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. Any of you all get up for the eclipse? I was up about 4.15 and... Got out there at 5 o'clock, didn't see anything much happening. About 10 minutes after 5, it was pretty evident that the eclipse was working. And I got pat up about mm, 10 minutes after 6, and we started out walking. And we were able to see pretty much the, the, the eclipse itself. Now, when we think of true spirituality, Satan's goal is that the work of Christ would be eclipsed. So Satan's goal from the foundation of the world would be to blot out what God is doing. Now, I was thinking as I was watching the eclipse, this is all very nice, but I'll be glad when the shadow of the earth uh, comes off the face of the moon. And the light is back. I can handle the darkness pretty well, but I like the light. I, I do a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff that I do requires the light. My son was asking me last night to help him tune up a lawnmower carburetor over the phone at 8.30 at night. And I told him, stop what you're doing. This is a job for daylight. You don't need to be trying to take apart a carburetor when it's dark. All through the, the scriptures, we're reminded God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. That idea dominates the whole thing of scripture. When we look at Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 10, Paul's bringing to a conclusion everything that he said. Sort of like Romans chapter 12, verse 1 here. But in this case, Paul says, 
Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to the end, to that end, Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Now, as we look at the whole aspect of spiritual life, living a Christian life in true spirituality, we have to be aware that there is what Paul is talking about in here, a tremendous spiritual warfare that's going on. It's in process all the time and there's a sense in which in Christ for us there is always a level of spiritual progress all the time as we live a life of faith in Christ Jesus. Now when we look at the scriptures this idea of spiritual warfare just doesn't begin in the New Testament. And so if you look at this, you see all the way back into the very beginning of the scriptures, there is this spiritual warfare. What is Paul doing here, though? Well, he is informing us about something. He is giving us the information that we need to know about the spiritual warfare. Now, he doesn't merely inform us. If you'll notice throughout this text, there are direct implications. He is telling us to do certain things. It's not merely enough for you to know that a warfare is going on. You need to know how do you conduct yourself in a warfare. You know, when I went to Paris Island, the first number of weeks was all in training on the one idea of you have to be fit and you have to be ready at a moment's notice to take and receive and to act upon orders. That's basically all that boot camp's about. But you're informed. Paul here also gives directions. Now the other thing that happens here is we are made to know that in this spiritual warfare, we are never alone. There is a team effort in every aspect of 
a Christian's personal life. There is the will of God, the Father that's being talked about here. There is the work of Jesus Christ that is being referred to here. And there is the power of the Holy Spirit. And Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work with each one of us to accomplish this spiritual warfare. You and I are unable to do this on our own. How does Jesus say it? Apart from me, what? You can do nothing. With Christ, what's possible? All things. When it's talking about all things to a great extent, it's talking about the idea of our living a spiritual life and winning in this warfare. But then, too, there's the whole aspect that as we have become a follower of Christ, then we are delegated. We are to engage personally and directly in spiritual warfare in the entirety of our life, from the early, early morning to the late, late at night. What's the song? Good golly, Miss Molly. It's never going to stop. It's never going to stop. So you've got to think about this all the time. People can't see spiritual warfare, so you have to be informed. People don't know what to do in spiritual warfare, so Paul tells us. People are always in spiritual warfare thinking they're alone. And some people in the whole idea of spiritual warfare would like to take a pass. But we're not given a pass. We're given the orders to go forth and to conduct ourselves as Christians. Now when we look at this, this goes all the way back to the beginning of time. Satan comes to Adam and Eve in this garden. Eve he beguiles, and through Eve he lures Adam. And Adam and Eve fall, and when they fall, it's a spiritual falling. They have chosen not to listen to the great God of all creation, and they have chosen to listen to someone who has recently introduced themselves into their lives and is twisting the, the word of God and twisting the love of God and twisting the goodness of God in all of this, and they listen to this twister and they become distorted. Where do they become distorted? Well, it's not obvious. They look physically fine, but immediately there is a twistedness within them in that Adam and Eve don't rightly relate to one another anymore. It's not anything you could see, but it is something you could recognize through watching them interact with one another. So Satan comes right from the beginning, and with Adam and Eve, you begin to see that everyone is bearing the consequences of their fall. So they have Cain and Abel. And Abel is a righteous man, and Cain hates God and hates then the one who is following after God. And you see this eclipsing of the glory of God in this man Cain in his murdering of his brother. Then later on there is a Tubal-Cain, and Tubal-Cain kills two men, and he seems as if he t kills them in delight. 
it, it, it's, it's a delightful thing to this man, Tubal Cain. Well, you get to Genesis 6, uh, 5, and you begin to see that God, recognizing all that's going on in this period of time, he comes and makes a statement that man's ways at that time are continuously evil in every area of life. And so with this evil, God sends judgment in the flood, and God sends grace and power in the ark and in the rainbow and in the covenant that he makes with Noah. But then it's just a very, very short time after that that we have the story of the Tower of Babel. God has told man that he is to multiply and man is to spread throughout the earth and man seeks to consolidate himself in opposition to God in a spiritual warfare. Man comes together in order to say, we will not do what God you tell us to do. We are going to do what we want to do. We're going to advance our own cause. We're going to be our own salvation. And so God comes down and again sends judgment in the, uh, the breaking down of the languages. And so the word Babel comes in. They don't understand one another, and he sends grace, and that grace is in the form of the calling of Abraham. Now, the calling of Abraham is a beginning of the picture of a direct personal warfare that the people of God are going to have in, in living for God as opposed to living in uh, companionship with the, the things of the devil. And so when we look at these first 11 chapters, you could basically think of something like the attempt of Satan to eclipse the greatness of the glory of the creator God. And the whole idea of looking at Genesis 1 through 11 is to see that great spiritual darkness that has come into the world through Satan and through the fall of Adam and Eve. And that darkness is intense, it is pervasive, and it is overwhelming. And so now in the backdrop of that, God calls one man. And he calls that one man to himself. And in calling that man, he makes promises to that man, you are going to prevail. Your seed is going to prevail over the serpent. And so this begins to move us. And the movement, of course, takes us directly to the person of Jesus Christ. Now, what is it that Paul's getting at as he talks about these things in his various epistles? Well, if we were to look at this spiritual uh, situation in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, or in Colossians 1, 21, we find that apart from God, man lives, man sins, man is judged, and man dies. That's the way uh, Paul talks about the person that's apart from God. You were once alienated from God. You were hostile in mind. 
you were engaged in evil deeds, or you were once dead in your sin and in the trespasses of your heart. And Paul talks about these things. That's the one side of it. But then there is for us in Christ who have accepted Christ the reality that what Paul's talking about is the same thing that he was talking about to Abraham. And so in Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, or in Colossians 1, 22, we're told what happens to the person who, like Abraham, exercises faith toward God. And he says, although you were once alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you to himself through his fleshly body, the fleshly body of Christ, in order to present you holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. Now, when you look out into the world and you see people, um, you know, I was a phys ed major. So when I went to intern as a phys ed major, at an elementary school, uh, we had the PE teacher. He was about this tall. He was huge. He probably weighed in excess of 275 pounds. Now, he was a black man. Here I was working with him. I was a little skinny white guy. And so he says, you know, when I look out at these kids out here, he says, what do you, when you look out at these little kids out here, what do you see? Well, I wasn't sure I wanted to bite on that hook. He says, I know what you see. You see some little white ones, you see some little black ones, and you see some little brown ones, don't you? And I said, well, yeah. He says, I don't see that. I says, really? He says, no, I don't see that. I says, what do you see? I see little dollar signs. <laughs> he says, I see little dollar signs. He says, I need to raise these kids. He had the most amazing jump rope program in that school. He had all the parents on his side. He had those kids eaten out of his hand all the time. Here was a man who saw something in these kids and, and saw it in a way that he introduced me to. I, I didn't think of it in that way. Now, the problem with us is when we look at people, we basically see people. That's what we see. But in reality, what we have to see is in each person that we look at, they are either with Christ or they're not. And if they're not with Christ, we're told they're of the devil. Now, that, that's just not going to get it today. If you talk like that, here's what people are going to say to you. You're a nut. You're crazy. You can't look at a person and tell me just by looking at them that you know that they're in Christ. You can't look at a person and just tell me you know from looking at them they're of Satan. Well, that's very true. This is a spiritual dimension. It is not a physiological dimension. It's a spiritual dimension. But the spiritual dimension is the greatest reality of all because it's going to consummate 
in a final reality that is going to separate all humanity into people who are lost and people who are saved. So in the Old Testament, it appears that God's total design is eclipsed, but the old progresses through Abraham, and we move in preparation for God's perfect salvation in the person of Christ. But what happens when Christ comes on the scene? Here is the eternal Son of God born into this world. And what we see immediately is that Satan is at work to destroy God's Son. And so you have Herod, and you have Herod coming to destroy these infants in an attempt to destroy Jesus. And this isn't an individual act, because when we look at it in the 12th chapter of the book of Revelation, you see that this is a consummate act of spiritual warfare of all times. Satan wants to devour the child that is born of the woman. Now, when we talk about Jesus' ministry, really since about the end of World War II, Jesus' ministry has been likened to the D-Day invasion at Normandy. Now, what the, the similitude here would be comparable with is everybody knew if we can just get the Allied forces established on the beach, that's all. If we can just get that done, Hitler's war is over. They knew that. And so once that that was established and the Allies had gotten a beachhead and moved into the inland and gone through the hedgerows, when that time happened, everybody knew it was merely a matter of time and Hitler would be defeated. Well, with Christ's ministry and the establishment of it and his resurrection, what that means is Satan is defeated. This warfare that is in the Old Testament that seems so ominous comes to a climax in the person of Christ, and Christ defeats Satan. Well, that doesn't mean that Satan is off the scene, but Satan is always involved even in the life of Christ. So you see Satan coming to Jesus, and after not succeeding in destroying him at birth, Satan is trying to tempt him to get him off the path. You see, especially in Mark's gospel, that Satan's demons are constantly resisting Jesus in trying to master Jesus. When the, when the demons say to Jesus, we know who you are. You are God's righteous one. They're not making a testimony about Jesus, but they are engaging in the old concepts of magic and satanic formulas in which if a person's name is perfectly known, then you can manipulate and control the one whose name you perfectly know. And so the commentators are always mentioning that this is a direct frontal attack upon Jesus in his ministry by these demons. Well, that wasn't successful. Well, it doesn't stop. 
And so here's Jesus after the great miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, and they're out on the boat, and what's happening? A storm comes down. Now, this storm is not like other storms. You know, you've got men who grew up on that lake, Peter, James, and John. They are frightened out of their wits. Now, I've been on the water all my life. I've been out in the water in some outlandish storms. I've never felt threatened, but I would know when to feel threatened. And if I felt threatened, the people that were with me would probably feel even more threatened because most cases they weren't as experienced as I. When Peter, James, and John are in a panic, it's not a normal storm. This is a storm sent by Satan to take Jesus out and to take the whole apostolic band out all in one thrust. It fails. Now you come to another high water mark. You come to the point where Peter says, I know who you are. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus pronounces this blessing upon Peter. And then in the next words out of Peter's mouth are, Far be it from you to go to the cross. You can't do that. You're kind of mistaken. You've kind of gotten the the narrative mixed up. Well, what does Jesus say to Peter? Get thee behind me, Peter. Is that what he said? No, he calls him Satan. Satan is working directly through Peter. Now, this warfare continues to be intense to the point... It said that when Judas Iscariot received the morsel, what happened to him? Satan entered into him. And in Jesus' trial, and in his, the charges that were brought against him, in the torturing that he experienced, in the crucifixion and death, it was all of Satan's plan to destroy the prince of life. But what Satan didn't understand is that he is an intellectual lightweight and strategist in comparison with God. So what Satan meant for evil, God meant for good in order that through the death of Jesus, death might be put to death. Now that's what ends up happening here, that through the death of Jesus, death, which is the payment for sin, which is the payment of spiritual rebellion, that that death is put to death in the death of Christ. And so when Christ dies on the cross, instead of it being a victory for Satan, it's a, it's a victory for God and a defeat for Satan. And so when Christ dies... He dies as a substitute. He dies as a payment. He dies in our place. And in dying in our place, not only does Jesus pay the penalty for sin, but he pays the penalty of release for everybody that will put their faith in him. And so where this whole aspect of a satanic plan to destroy the prince of life it backfires and becomes the creation of that which will give the prince of life the ability to give life to everyone through the payment 
of our sins. And then that is all shown as accomplished by Jesus' vindication and resurrection and his ascending into heaven. So, but this, this business of being a victory for Jesus, it becomes a victor for us, victory for us, because as Christ now goes to where no one had ever gone before as a human to sit at the right hand of the Father on high, what Jesus is given the power and the privilege to do is to give the Holy Spirit. Now, when Jesus gives the Holy Spirit, he restores to those who will follow him that which was taken away from them at the time of the fall. And so the whole aspect of life and eternal life and fellowship with God is totally accomplished through Jesus Christ. And so when people come and receive the Holy Spirit, they receive eternal salvation, but they also receive the seal of their salvation that cannot be taken away. Now, where are we in this? You get the explanation, but Paul comes in here and he begins to tell us what are we to do. What are you to do with all of this? What is this to, how is this to, to anchor into your own life? Well, the key word here in one of the other translations is we're to be strong in the Lord and we are to stand firm. Be strong in the Lord, but then you stand firm. Over and over again, it's saying, you stand firm. All right, Satan's going to come against you. Now, if I was to come against you, 215 pounds, long arms, stronger than most people, there'd be a few of you be able to take me on. But I don't think there'd be many of you. You know, I went through Marine Corps boot camp and hand-to-hand training. You know what Eleanor Roosevelt called the Marine Corps? Oversex, underpaid teenage killers. I was one of them. Now, if I came against you, you'd see me. If Satan came against you, do you think you're going to see him? Well, how are you going to fight someone you can't see? Do you think you're smarter than Satan? you think you're going to outfox him? I don't think you're going to outfox him. Um, do you think he's going to give you advance notice? I'm coming tomorrow morning. you think he's going to do that? I don't think he's going to do that. So you're not smarter, you're not stronger, you're not going to know when he's coming against you, so what can you do? Well, the Bible is amply filled with information on what to do. You attach yourself to Jesus Christ and you stand firm. That's what you're to do. Now, you can't fight him, but you can stand with Christ. You can look at what the scriptures say here. Stand firm in God's truth. Stand firm in God's righteousness. You know, all around us, the whole idea of being righteous is become a, a, a variable. I, I think righteousness means this. Well, I think righteousness means that. 
Well, why not the Bible says this is what righteousness is? If this is what righteousness is, stand there. Be peaceful. Again, this culture that we live in is anything but peaceful. But we're to be peaceful. Where we stand in peace with Christ, we resist the devil. You know, a peaceful person is hard for Satan to get at. But when an irritable person is available, Satan can use that irritable person. You know, if you're a one-way kind of a person, my way or the highway, well, you're just a perfect setup for Satan. There's just lots of ways to think of this. Peaceful. Live by faith against the fiery attacks of Satan. Live by scripture. Stand firm in the Holy Spirit. Stand firm in prayer. Well, how do we fight an adversary stronger than us? How do we fight an adversary we can't see? Clearly, we can fight Satan. And it's found again in verse 11, 13, and 14. You stand firm in Christ. What is Christ taught? What is Christ's example? What is Christ's promise? You know, people today cave because they think they're alone. But if we understand that Christ is with us and we stand firm with him, then we will stand. But it requires us understanding that this is a delegated thing. We have to do this. We're not clever enough to adapt to all the wiles of the devil. But we are directed to live faithfully. That's standing firm. We're delegated to obey simply. That's standing firm. Now, what is we told as we resist the devil? What does it say? He will flee from us. There it is. How do you resist the devil? By standing firm in Christ. So when you come to Paul's ending in Romans, he says, I'm convinced. Neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities or things present nor things to come nor powers nor heights, nor depths, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is a very present and real spiritual warfare going on. The element for us is to live by faith and to stand with Christ in these basic aspects of what it means to be a Christian. As we live in this way, you don't have to fear the devil. You don't have to plan on how you're going to fight him. All you have to do is be a disciple of Jesus Christ faithfully day to day. And Christ will take care of that fight in us and through us. Let's pray. Help us, Father, as we wrestle with these things week by week to understand the simplicity of being a disciple of Christ. And help us by the Holy Spirit to ever more increasingly want to live in that way. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.